Hey everybody, on this episode of Clinically Pressed, we're doing kind of a what we are reading, but also an episode um, really tied into leadership. This is with Rick Cox, who has done a couple leadership insights with us, um, and we're almost kind of doing a book review, but pulling out expert excerpts from the book Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. Both Rick and I have read this book, and it hit us really hard in a good way. In terms of just re-looking at a lot of things within the athletic training profession, but that applies really to everything, especially in the world of health and fitness and strength and conditioning, which we talk about um, in this podcast. And I, we recommend this book to anybody. Rick goes into some details about how you can take it slow and steady or you can power through it. And either way, it's kind of built for that. Um, super interesting takes on everything. Go in with an open mind. We give you some excerpts here. We'll probably do a round two just because we had so many things that were interesting about it. But without further ado, please enjoy this episode on Ego is the Enemy. Welcome to this episode of Clinically Pressed. Uh, we are on with Rick Cox, who has done a couple leadership insights for us. Um, and we have been throwing around this idea for quite some time, but just with the world as everybody's been dealing with, you know, trying to find time to get it to make it happen, um, here we are. But what we're going to do for this episode is different than what we've done for other ones. It's not an interview. Um, it's going to be more of a conversation, but pulling from some unique insights. So it's a little bit of a what we are reading slash also just a conversation. Um, what we're going to be going on is the book Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. Uh, this one has been on my reading list forever. Um, honestly, I think, Rick, I saw you read it or you posted a couple quotes or something and I was like I just need to go buy this book bought it crushed it took a bajillion notes out of it um posted a couple quotes out of it because he's got some hard hitters that hit you right in the think about it you know area similar to like when I've read Jocko's books and it's like oh yep I gotta be better um but anyway uh we threw around the idea of basically pulling out are some passages that we thought were really good and basically just sharing those and discussing them and how they apply beyond athletic training, but that'll kind of be the main theme. But so many of these things can apply to so many areas and we'll delve into that a little bit as well. Um, but before I keep going, Rick, what else do you have to add? Uh, just, you know, you know, thanks for this. You know, we, like you said, we've been talking about doing this for a while and I'm excited to finally get it done. Uh, I've been, I've been a Ryan holiday fan myself for, for quite some time. He's written uh, a few other books. Uh, he's uh, the obstacle is the way was his first. Uh, it predates ego is the enemy. And then after ego is the enemy is uh, it's stillness is the key. So it's kind of like a trilogy Yep. Uh, trilogy of books and what I really like about them is you can pick this up and you can read it in a day like the book I, I'm holding right here, it's small the pages aren't that big there's not a ton of words per page so and, and I you know in interviews he said that he designed it that way to be you can either take it a day at a time or you can consume it all in one day and that's actually what he wanted um, but I definitely think uh, you know viewing not just athletic training but medicine as a whole I think uh, big egos play a huge role in, in, in medicine. And I think that a lot of people would benefit from hearing some of the things Ryan has to say about what ego uh, can do to you in a negative way. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, medicine, you know, strength and conditioning. Big time. Um, you know, uh, you can go uh, nutrition. <laughs> uh, that, that, yeah. Uh, whoa, that's a slippery. <laughs> so like I said, the, <coughs> excuse me. The basic premise is, is we'll just go back and forth. Uh, we each picked out two to three passages to cover tonight. Uh, we've already been messaging back and forth. There'll probably be a part two to this just because there's so many um, hard-hitting 
you know, things that we could go over. So uh, I think I have, I think I have like at least 20 things in the Google doc that I pulled out and I was like, this this was way, this is way too many things for one episode. Yeah. In in my huge nerdiness, you know, I go and I highlight as I read or mark and bracket, and then I go back and I type all those up. So I've always got it in a document, which has served me well sometimes because it saves a lot of searching for a book. If you know, you've got something that you want to go back and find and right that document's probably four or five pages of highlights. Mm-hmm. So I had to trim it down quite a bit to not yeah. overly mm-hmm. crush this thing. So, yeah. um, but Rick, I'll, I'll let you go first. Um, so whatever one you want to pick and then we can just chat and see where we move on to the next one. Sure. So I think, well, one thing that's important is, excuse me, is to kind of define what we mean by ego. Uh, And then Ryan even says in the book, it's not meant in like the Freudian sense in some clinical definition, uh, but the way that he, uh, he poses it is, it it says early on uh, ego, the ego we see most commonly goes by a more casual definition, an unhealthy belief in our own importance. And I think that's what we're talking about when we talk about that ego that can get you into trouble. Um, and so really like my first passage that I pulled out was, um, if ego is the voice that tells us we're better than we really are, we can say ego inhibits true success by preventing a direct and honest connection to the world around us. The ways this separation manifests itself negatively are immense. We can't work with other people. If we put up walls, we can't improve the world. If we don't understand it ourselves. And the big part for me, we can't take or receive feedback if we are incapable of or uninterested in hearing from outside sources. And that was, especially that last line, like that's, that's what I think is, is huge is we get to a point where we think we know everything and we can't learn anymore and nobody can tell us otherwise. Um, and I think as a student, you kind of go in and you, you don't know anything and you learn and learn and learn and then you leave and then you think you know everything. And then most people realize that you're very quickly humbled by the real world. And, you know, some people just never get over the, I can't learn anymore, which is mm-hmm. really unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, I can't agree more with that. And I know we're going to get into it so much with these other ones and there'll probably be a lot of repetitive, um, but yeah, you got to be willing to take the feedback, even if you think it's wrong. But I think, you know, there's a good way you can go about being humble in your own feedback and giving yourself your own criticism. You know, if you're just seeing something that's not working, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. You know, so when you're, you know, as a clinician treating something, but you're only going at it with a hammer, you know, pick whatever modality or whatever that may be you know you're not using your whole toolbox and you've got to be able to take that feedback in real time to know that you're going to make something better and that's the same thing you know as a patient or somebody that might be going to treatment or whatnot like yeah you're going to hit plateaus and things are going to come up but if all you're doing is the same thing and they keep telling you just to keep coming back like Uh you got to take that into account and be open to hearing that from outside resources and the other one i think that applies to so many people around this one you know if there was one thing pick any certification whatever that was that good we'd all be doing it we'd all be doing the exact same thing and it just isn't so and i learned that lesson early on still always evolving with it but there's not you know dry kneeling is an amazing thing but it is not a panacea it does not fix everything it does not work for everybody it still is a couldn't be a powerful tool like other things but if i'm just gonna throw needles in everybody and say that this is what i do this is what works i'm probably not maximizing it Right. And then also on the other end of the spectrum, like people look at some people will look at dry needling and call it a sham and, you know, and not believe that it works, even though a patient receives a dry needling treatment and has decreased pain. Others just won't, you know, they won't believe that because the literature doesn't 
agree with it. Um, which I think is, and I think we, you know, we kind of talked about this on the last podcast was that like three prongs of the, uh, evidence-based practice and like the anecdotal portion just gets in like clinician, you know, and like patient preference and anecdotal evidence from the clinician, like, it, you know, it gets thrown out the window. But I, I think another way that people tend to run into problems is like anybody that is not an AT, like you don't have anything to teach me, which I couldn't disagree with more you know like there's obviously we've seen so many battles between physical therapy and athletic training and you know people i've seen people who are on twitter athletic trainers like calling out like you know orthopedic surgeons that they you know their technique was wrong i'm just like what who do you who are you who are you to tell this orthopedic surgeon who's actually performed orthopedic surgeries that they need to be doing something different like and it's just a matter of like they they just I don't know if it's just because it's social media and they're, they know that they're not actually going to see the person in real life, or they truly believe that they know better than this, this medical expert that has more experience and more education. Um, but I, I just, I can't, I can't, I get, I, I hate it so much when people just don't have this collaborative mindset and they're just like, you're outside of the profession. You know, we've obviously, we know different people that are dual credentialed, and they, you know, they, they st- tend to stay in one area and people who are in the other area have an issue with that. And, uh, you know, that's just, it's, it's not, it's, it's terrible. Yeah, I mean, a couple points that you made that I think are really important, you know, the outside sources, you know, you don't have to agree with everything that everybody does. And again, as long as I, people are relatively justified and well thought out, I think that's fair. Now, that's not always going to occur. And unfortunately, that's the nature of the world. Um, you know, I'm not picking on chiropractors. I was going to be one once upon a time. Just the student loan debt scared me too much. Um, but in terms of like ART, active release technique, got into it, learned it from a chiropractor, was an amazing guy, amazing, you know, colleague, learned a ton of one that is a good buddy of mine now, you know, with dynamic neuromuscular stabilization stuff and just opening my eyes to more, you know, I, I don't want to speak for all ATs, but we're generally, most people are afraid of dealing with the back because it's complex and it's not easy all the time, but just getting more comfortable and being able to go about it and have some confidence in what I was doing, even just generally learn that from him. Um, then there's other ones that I just, I, I don't agree with what they do and I've got my reasons and they've got theirs and that just is what it is. But if I was just like hey, chiropractic, I would have exactly. missed- You've got that, you've got that spectrum of people that you, you know, they, they, they perform treatments that you're like, I can, I can see the benefit of that. And then the other end, it's like, what are you doing? Yep. Um, and you see that in, you know, in the, in the, in the strength and conditioning world too, that huge spectrum of, Sometimes you just see this nonsense on Instagram that you're like, who on earth is coming up with it? It's like you just throw every single thing you can think of at the athlete at one time. And then, but, but, the, but the part of that is like, if the athlete is working hard and you can find, if you can find some clinical reasoning for, for it, like, even though it might look ridiculous and sometimes I do look at stuff and I'm like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. But if you actually sit there and break it down, you're like, all right, I can see some sort of physiological benefit to that aspect of it. So, but and, and to that point, like it, from coach, like I, I, I talk to coaches about, not about medical stuff, obviously, but like sure. just in terms of like how to deal with their athletes. And some, some people are just are, are opposed to that as well because they're not medical professionals and they don't think they can learn anything from them. Yeah. Just that being open and, not to, you know, to the passage you read, not just digging your feet in and completely tuning it out. And I understand a lot of people go through different things in terms of, you know, how much they've had to go back and forth and, you know, fight for somebody to listen to what they're saying. But I don't think anybody can turn their back on feedback because you just, not going to get better like that it's so important to getting better and i think there's a lot you can do by yourself to do that but it 
it's also very easy to fool yourself. There, there's all the biases in the world you can come up with to do that. And so to just tune it out is doing yourself a disservice um, along with others. And yeah, feedback doesn't have to be offensive and that can, it can be depending mm-hmm. on what comes at it, but also it doesn't have to be. And I think in the, world where we're quick to make a snap judgment it, it, we tend to just assume anything that's contradictory is offensive exactly like if, you know i think some people sometimes they look for feedback and what they're actually looking for is this is great you're doing a great job keep doing yep. what you're doing and like they say oh I, I thrive on on feedback and i want to improve my job performance but anytime the feedback is not a hundred percent positive they're being attacked Yep. And, and I, I can tell you like right now, like I didn't like getting negative feedback at one point in my career. Like it's, it, especially when you're young, it's like, you want to, you just, you, you want to do well all the time. And, you know, and you've got these people that you, you respect. And if they try and they try to give you some constructive criticism, it's all, it's, it's almost, it's easier to look at it as, Oh my, they just hate me yep. versus, wow, I actually do have an area of improvement that I need to work on. Sure. So I'm actually going to cheat here because the, the two other two that I – two of the three that I highlighted apply directly to this. So I think <laughs> we can just kind of continue the conversation but with a little bit um, of tying in. So one is actually a quote from somebody else in the book. Uh, the person is John Wheeler, uh, which I would have to go and look at who – John Wheeler actually is but anyway the quote is is as our island of knowledge grows so does the shore of our ignorance which I thought was pretty impactful um and we'll get into that but then I'll just say the second one is it takes a special kind of humility to grasp that you know less even as you know and grasp more and more and man do I think that is such a powerful thing for any clinician or professional in this world of and i found it with myself like the more i feel like i'm diving into topics i realize i don't know anything and then now in my new role that i'm doing i'm working with three very good they're non-surgical but sports medicine doctors and also a sports ortho i don't know anything like <laughs> And then yeah. with my PhD buddy down the hallway and I really don't know anything. And then I talked to my other buddy going through his PhD right now, who is like an XL savant on top of everything else that he does. And it's, it's, it's humbling. And, but that's, a, it can be almost like, it is a full blow to the ego where I'm just like, man, what the, what am I doing? Like, what do I bring to the world? Cause you know, all of them are nice and be like, no, you're smart and you're good at what you do. But at the same time, I'm like, but I'm not that smart. Like, right. Crap, like, what are you guys doing? But you know, those two, one quote and one line of, you know, as you get to know more and you start digging into more people, there's always more to know and understand better. And I think that was one of the things that always, attracted me to athletic training but also strength and conditioning and just medicine in general is you can never know it all even if you try and get super specialized within your realm there's no way you're going to know it all and you have to understand that and just because you found something that works for you doesn't mean it's just going to transfer over to the next one and that's where the art i think of medicine and performance you know strength training and all this stuff comes in is being willing to understand that and grasp that. Right. And I think, you know, it it just, it just comes down to like, you know, at the beginning, you don't know what you don't know. Um, And then as you learn more, you just learn how much there is to know. And then I think the goal is never, it's, it's all, it's always like, it's always out of reach, right? You're, You're never going to know everything and you're never going to be good enough but I think oftentimes like that, that shouldn't be the goal. The goal should be kind of constant improvement and constant learning. Um, and, you know, so and one thing that I, we haven't had athletic training students um, before at Suffolk and I, and I didn't, and it's been a while since I had some in the manual. We're, we're actually working with a, I'm working with 
the clinical director at a, at a nearby college will hopefully be taking students uh, at some point next year. But like, that is something that always humbles me big time. Whereas like, obviously we're there to, to mentor them and to teach them. But like, I haven't, you know, I haven't taken an athletic training class in I've been certified for 13 years. I haven't taken a cert, an athletic training class in 13 yeah. years. And the stuff, I'm sure there's lots of stuff that I learned in my athletic training class that they are not teaching athletic training students today. Right. You know, they're going to, they're going to come in and they're going to be like, well, we learned this in class today. And I'm going to be like, I don't even, I don't even know what you're saying. Like you need, to, you need to explain, yeah, you need to explain that to me because I don't get that. But that's kind of what, that's part of the reason why I want them to come is like, I want, I want to help, you know, mentor the next generation of young athletic trainers. But I also know that, you know, them coming in is going to make me a better clinician myself because it's going to force me to look at what I don't know, which is a lot. Yeah, I, I had two points, but I can only remember one right this second. You know, what? like if I'm practicing or if I have the same thought processes in five or 10 years from now, I'm not, I'm not growing and evolving because everything's going to grow and evolve. How I used to treat, I mean, I would love to go back and do my grad school working with track and field again because I would do it so differently now with just experience of how I would handle things not you know just on the clinical side but even on just the working with coaches working with athletes I was just young and I didn't know any better and then nobody told me about it or nor did I ask but that was also one that I you know, say with like the students that I've gotten to work with is like, look, I, I'm trying to make you guys be ahead of where I was at your point. Like, I feel like I'm five to 10, you know, maybe not 10 years. I'm five years behind where I could be because I didn't ask the questions that I should have. I didn't do the, you know, get involved in research and do all these things and build this skill set. So all I'm trying to do for you is push you forward so you guys continue to improve because when you start asking me questions I don't know, you might be getting smarter than me. And I'll be damned if you're going to be smarter than me as a joke <laughs> because right. it makes the whole collective better that mm -hmm. can all want to improve in them asking good questions makes me have to improve and go from there. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, to your point about like your previous your previous, you know, your clinical work. I, I always, I, I was, if I look back at like some of the like programs that I wrote in my first job as a strength coach, like it's, it's laughable. Mm -hmm. and, and like some, some of it just because of like, I, I look and I'm like, I think back and I'm like some of the, like the exercises I had these people do, like in the order that I had them do, like my programming was just not great. And, but it was, but I also got, I'm like, it's, but it's the best I could write at the time. Sure. You know, like that's, that's what I knew. That was the, that was the knowledge I had. And, you know, and now like, I obviously I can't go back now and do the same things with the knowledge I have, but I wish I could. And I wish that I could go back and do, I, for my grad school, I did my strength and conditioning internship at Harvard with their football team. And I, I tell you right now, I did not get as much out of that as I could have if I was a better intern, right? I did I to the same thing. So I didn't ask enough questions. I didn't absorb enough information. I, you know, I, I kind of did, I did my, I did, you know, my best with my, with my, the, the way I was able to think at the time. And now I look back and I'm like, oh my God, they had so much knowledge that I could have, that I could have taken. And I just left it there because I just wasn't good enough about knowing what to ask. And, you know, knowing that like making a ton of mistakes is what I was there for. So I, like, rather than ask a stupid question, I, I wouldn't ask it, you know, whereas it is, as much as we hear that, like, you know, the only stupid question is the one you don't ask. Like, it's easy to say that, but it's also like, if you're an intern in a class and there's like a ton of, you know, division one football players around, you're going to ask a strength coach a question and look like an idiot. You're going to be like, nah, not, not right now. Definitely not right now you know so and then you, you know whatever you you should ask it later but you don't so <laughs> but it, it is it's like at a certain point there's just too much information and you can't you can't know it all it's not possible but being okay with that and knowing and i think the big thing is knowing that like knowing that you don't know everything and that you never will and that you can always get better at something like i think i saw recently uh i think it was um 
like Brett, Brett Bartholomew, maybe, or what, um, Brett Contreras, maybe, was talking about how he had an intern who he like he was he felt he was good enough at communication. And uh, I was well, yeah, like, I, think I, saw, I saw that tweet, and he was kind of like, "Why? Why would you ever think you were good enough at such a such a fundamental, important skill? Even right. if you think you communicate well enough, like, why would you be okay with where you were at?" So that's kind of how I look at it. Is you know, why why would you be okay? And why would you think you could possibly know everything? Yeah, I think you know just. To, follow up on one more of your points and then we can bump on to the next one is, you know, all the things you just said of like going back and, or we both said going back and realizing that we didn't get as much out of what we could then that is fantastic fuel and just a great reminder to understand that now and not let that occur that, you know, you know what you don't know, but then you can actively go and seek that out you know, and, and figure it out and ask the questions or read the article or whatever it may be. Um, if you can use that as a driver forward, that, that you're aware then, you're aware that you don't know these things, but you're at least on a path of going to explore it, which is ultimately going to hopefully make it all better in the long run. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, yeah. So, so my next passage actually also like ties in. This all comes together, right? Yeah, it, it's, you know, it's like he knows what he's doing when he writes or something. It's weird. Uh, but it's, it's basically in its chapter. It's called, it's called Become a Student. Um, and the passage that I like is the power of being a student is not just that it is, it is an extended period of instruction. It also places the ego and ambition in someone else's hands. There's a sort of ego ceiling imposed. No one, one knows that he is not better than the master he apprentices under, not even close. Um, and I think that it's, it's sort of this, the same sort of mindset you, you really need to have is this like always be a white belt uh, mentality um, and, and, you know, seeking out uh, mentors. I think it, like right after that, he talks about uh, Frank Shamrock who was, you know, he was uh, in the UFC and he was in the, the WWE and he, he, you know, he's a, he's a, you know, a martial artist of a very high caliber. World's and his, man. what's that? The world's dangerous man. Oh yeah. I, I, I used to love watching him do that ankle lock when he was, <laughs> when he was like back in the day. Um, but he always, he has that plus minus equals system. And it was like, you need to have, always have someone better than you that can teach you someone worse than you that you can teach and someone who is your equal that you can basically compete against mm-hmm. um, or continue to learn from. And I don't necessarily know if we need to, f- I think that, that that's kind of how we can look at it as an AT is like, you want to find a mentor you. And then in the terms of uh, for, for me, having the AT students, not, I'm not trying to say they're worse than me, but they know they have less experience. Sure. And then my coworkers, I, I use my coworkers constantly to, to, to get ideas and to, to push myself to, to become better. And I think that you just need that. It, it ties into not knowing what you don't know, what you don't know and always wanting to learn things that you don't know. And it's always being a student. And even if you're, you know, you've been an athletic trainer for three decades, always wanting to kind of push the boundaries on what you know and try new things. And it's not about getting stuck in a certain mindset in terms of treatment in terms of the way that you evaluate, in terms of the way that you, you know, whatever, whatever it is, um, always being a student and having the, 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 the mindset of wanting to, to learn. Yeah, I completely agree. I, when, you, when you're reading it, the first thing I thought about is, you know, the importance of really good mentors and then just kind of looking at it from both sides of it, you know, as the mentee, you got to be able, willing and able to search that person out and then ask those questions and push them. But then as the mentor, you've got to be willing to push that person, ask your own questions, you know, and really drive that forward. You know, so if you're going to be, as it was written in the book, you know, the quote master, you have the responsibility as well to that person. And it's not just that one way street 
Um, I, just, I think the, both of those are super important, you know, because you can't – I think in that kind of like gaining knowledge thing in the mentor-mentee relationship, it probably shifts to the mentee to go after it a little bit more, but it cannot be so lopsided that you're not, as a mentor or, you know, that quote-unquote master imparting that on them because they may just need that in order to get it going. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, when you talk about the, the, the it's a, he says you near know, that the, there's an ego ceiling. And I, I think that's, uh, this is when you run into trouble is when you, when you just don't have that ego ceiling. And then <laughs> while you're, while you're, you're like, Oh, I know I need a mentor, but you just in your mind, like they're just, you're better than them. And even though they've had X number of years experience more than you, they've treated thousands more athletes than you. You know, you you just graduated. You know everything, and they can't really teach you anything. That's that same mindset that we talked about in the beginning is not being able to to take feedback from that person. Um, and then again, as as a as a as the mentor, like you said, you need to you need to be humble as well, and you need to to know that you're there for them. It's not about you. While they help you become better, if you let them, it's your goal is to make them better. And if you, as the mentor, have this massive ego. Yes. We, we, we've heard, we've heard so many stories about like leaders and mentors in the profession that drive other people out, whether it's because of, you know, misogyny or whether it's because of, you know, you know, racism or whatever, because they just have this massive ego and they don't know how to, you know, look at the world in a different way that so many people end up leaving the profession because of these, people that were supposed to be their mentors. Um, and that's always just sad when I hear those stories. Yeah, that's an interesting one. You know, I've seen it come up a lot in multiple places. You know, the, well, this is what we always, you know, had to go through. So they have to go through thing. And, <coughs> you know, I look back on my experiences and I got paid not very well as a GA. I had to take out some student loans in hindsight not a great situation just on paper but man i don't know that i would trade it for much at this point in my career with the connections i was able to make and the you know things i learned but at the same time i me personally and i have a feeling a lot of people would also say this if there was a better opportunity or somebody like reached out and said hey this is a better opportunity we're going to give you what you've got but we're also going to make it just better because here's a living wage or a tuition waiver or whatever the difference would be. I don't think I'd sit there and be like, no, nah, I'm good. And I'm just going to go over here and, you know, do this thing. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm the same way. Like I, my, I, I was making, when I was a GA at Bridgewater where I went to grad school, I was making $600 a month. Um, and you know, like I wouldn't change anything that I've done because it's brought me to where I am, but I also wouldn't wish that on anybody. And I don't think that that has to be the way that we go through it. Like, you know, I don't love this. uh, I mean, you know, we can get into the whole master's transition thing and getting rid of the GA positions, whether you think that's good or bad. Um, I think that I, I do, I am glad that, you know, hopefully, getting rid of the GA positions will mean that we'll stop taking advantage of, of young professionals as much as we have in the past. Um, and then it seems like a lot of time, like the, they're switching over to this internship route, which is, yeah, it's not, not, not it's not an internship. It's basically practically free labor. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, a lot of these young professionals will recognize that you shouldn't have to, you know, take a, a job that pays you 10 grand a year and forces you to work 65 hours a week just because you need to, you know, you know, cut your teeth right. um, around these, around these people. Um, I, that's what I really, I hope that goes away because, and then there are, there absolutely are people that, that have that mindset of like, this is what I had to do. This is what you have to do. And it's like, that's, that's not growing the profession. Yeah, I don't know that you need to go and I'm just going to throw out random numbers because I know this changes from place to place. But do I think you need to pay every young, you know, like entry level professional, just say 50 grand for their first job? 
no, I don't know that, or what, you know, insert whatever number you think is reasonable here. I'm not sure that I fully, you know, think that's the case, but if we're going to improve as a profession, it's gotta be something more respectable than, you know, even one of my first ones was 32, five. Now the benefit side of it was great, but still like, really, you know, yeah, that's making $15 an hour. If I was working a 40 hour work week, which I was not working a 40 hour work week, like right. we have to do better than that. And that's where, you know, I, I just, I don't, I don't think, I think that's even low. You know, again, it all depends on where you're at, where you live and all the different things, you know, the pay rate and out where you're at versus the pay rate where I'm at means two very different things in terms of what you can do. Right. <laughs> yeah. Even the, the locations you're at, but mm-hmm. yeah, it, it just, it needs to go away. And I think if it would have been an opportunity to be better for some of the people that say you got to go through what I had to go through, they probably would have taken it and thought themselves to be pretty smart if they had the opportunity, you know, whenever that was. Same thing. I mean, I've got a younger sister that's an athletic trainer, and those are some of the things we talked about. Like, you need to look for a tuition waiver and, you know, whatnot. Like, you you need to consider that because, again, I wouldn't trade what I did, but, man, if I had another opportunity to do it over again – I probably ended up where I was. So. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, my last one, since I cheated and put two together, um, is having to do with authority. Uh, this was early on in the book. I don't know what chapter. Uh, I was going to put that one down too, and then I saw you put it on there, and I was like, well. <laughs> <laughs> um. But the quote, the, the excerpt is, is appearances are deceiving. Having authority is not the same as being an authority. Having, having the right and being right are not the same either. Being promoted doesn't necessarily mean you're doing good work, and it doesn't mean you are worthy of the promotion and parentheses. They call it failing upward in such bureaucracies, into parentheses. Impressing people is utterly different from being truly impressive. And that one just hit right to the, you know, right to the crux of it is, you know, position doesn't equal authority. And I think, you know, we've talked about that. I think you have as well, you know, the management leadership and neither one is inherently bad, but they are different. Mm-hmm. And just because you have a position of authority does not mean you are the authority. And that applies to so many things. And I would even argue that applies that, you know, if you're the head AT of insert whatever here, you know, high school, college, whatever, that, that is, you know, you're just, or if you're just the AT for whatever team, like, yeah, you're in a position of authority, but that doesn't necessarily make you un-authority. Mm-hmm. And being okay with that is only, I think, going to make you better. And I, yeah. you know, the idea of falling upward I mean, how often do you see it? <laughs> and, All the time. Know, it is what it is, and it sucks. But um. yeah, and I think you know, I, I've I've said this a lot of times. Even when it comes to to leadership, like leadership is is a mindset. It's not a it's not a position. So there are people in positions of authority that are not. Not only are they not an authority, they're not a leader either. And there are people that do not have a position of authority they're not in a leadership or a, a uh, you know a managerial position and they're they're natural leaders and they actually are more knowledgeable and are an authority on a certain subject and we see it all the time you know sometimes in at, at, at the level you you hear about like athletic trainers that move around with a coach and the reason that they go around with the coach is the coach likes them because they tell the coach what they want to hear sure. and that 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 happens regularly, I think, and um, hopefully less often than I think, but I think it probably happens pretty regularly. Um, and that person is not an authority. That person is a yes man, and that coach is an authority with a lot of power who can pick and choose who they want to be around them, and they choose the people that are going to give them the right answers, and that's, that's unfortunate. Yeah, I think you know, that last line, the impressing people is utterly different from being truly impressive. That one really hits and I, I'm blank yeah. 
on who wrote the article, but there's one out there called a thousand true fans. Um, mm -hmm. it's one, um, but the whole premise of it is, is you don't need a million fans. If you've got 1000 that are just dedicated to whatever it is you're doing, you know, if you're running a business or whatever that may be, that is what is, you know, if you've got a thousand people that are going to consider buying whatever you're selling, you're going to be successful, you know, in what you're doing. And I think about that on like social media, you know, your followers are great, but does it really matter? You know, so if you got 5,000 followers, but only 50 people actually really pay attention to what you're saying, but you're just trying to be impressive to them by having hot takes or getting combative or whatever it may be, are you truly having any more of an impact or being truly impressive versus somebody that has 500 followers, but 400 of them truly are buying into what you're saying and like what you're doing? I think that happens a lot on yeah. social media is, you know, these numbers and you know, all of a sudden that, you know, or if you get verified, you know, that makes you this all of a sudden this authority, which may be the case, but I don't think it, it, it's not this straight linear line, you know, to it. it, it yeah. And then when you, when you, when you talk about like, like the, the pure numbers, like making you an authority, like you can just look at something like, like a social media influencer and like in that space, right? Like you've got, you've got these people that have, you know, 500,000, a million followers on Instagram and they're putting out this content and it's like, you're 17 years old. Like what, what have you what do you know? Like, what have you done? And then you get these people that are like, because they look amazing. Cause whatever, whatever the reason genetics or, you yeah. know, steroids or whatever reason you want to pick, um, they look amazing. So everyone thinks they are an authority when they've actually never opened an exercise physiology book in their entire lives. And then they're going to sell their programs. I'm going to, I'm going to do custom programs for people. Like it's just a huge scam. Cause whatever they, they pulled, they pull the program off the internet, put their name at the top, and they give the same one to every single person that pays them two hundred dollars. But that person doesn't know. If you don't, it comes down to not know, not knowing what you don't know. And if you're like an impressionable young kid, and you're like, "Oh, I want to look like that guy. I want to look like that girl," you're gonna eat it up because you think that's what because they 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 look how you want to look. They have the life that you you think you want to have, yep. and it's just not reality. Yep. Coming from a guy that spent way too much money on supplements that did. <laughs> oh man. Another I try to tell that to my athletes all the time. They're like, supplements, supplements. And I'm like, like a lot of what, like, uh, like, they'll tell me what they're taking. And I'm like, you know what you're, we, we know what we call that. We call that expensive urine. That's what we call that. Yes. Yeah. You know, you, you just, you left Vitamins Chopper GNC with, you know, $200 worth of stuff that is going to do absolutely nothing for you. <laughs> Because yep. the guy at GNC told you that that's how we got jacked. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I, I don't want to, I will never be able to, nor would I ever want to <clears throat> go back and realize how much money was wasted in hindsight. Mm -hmm. You're, we're about the same age, but you remember Animal Pack? The oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wasted a lot of money on that. Yeah. So, yeah. Like you. I've never been like I've never been like a pre-workout guy. Just I think I consume too much caffeine as it is. Like if I took a pre-workout, my heart would probably explode. And like really in general, like I've tried, you know, like you know, I've done like the like the you know like the CLA whatever stack for like fat burning, and I'm like, what what were you doing? Like you're an idiot. Like, and yeah. then so I do. I so like you know, it's like creatine and protein is like my like my staple supplements, and like anything other than that, I just think is probably not going to help you out that much i mean that's all i do for i mean i do i had a little collagen peptides in hmm. um, and then it's omega-3s some vitamin d some vitamin c and then that that's about it i just eat regularly other than that like right. <clears throat> i don't spend much money on it so mm -hmm. yep <laughs> oh you got one more yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, and then, so I, I got this, this last one, uh, and it, cause it reminds me of a, a kind of 
reminds me of a couple things, so I'll just read it. Um, and it's talking about, um, it's in a chapter called Failure. And it says, this is what we're aspiring to, aspiring to much more than mere success. What matters is that we can respond to what life throws at us and how we make it through. And what that reminded me of is this sort of uh, stoic um, philosophy of what's called amor fati or a love of fate. And it's sort of like, what it also reminds me of is, because you know I'm not going to go through a podcast without talking about Jocko, <laughs> is, is, is the, the good video. Have you seen the good video? I feel like I know what you're referencing. And obviously, I, I know it from your right forearm now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah, that's just constant reminder on me now. And essentially, it's it's the idea of, you know, Jocko talks about how, you know, one of his one of his uh, team leaders comes over and he's going to talk, give, give, tell him what problem he has. And he says, I know what you're going to say. And Jocko says, what am I going to say? And he says, you're going to say good, you know, and that's so, it's sort of the mindset that he has that like, you know, oh, you have a problem. Good. That's going to lead to an opportunity. Yep. Um, and that, and that's sort of that same thing with how I interpret this Amor Fati is take what you can from events, make the most of the events. Like you can't, and then that's a big thing when stoicism is you can't control what happens to you. You control how you respond. Absolutely. And, you know, and then you kind of have this mindset of I'll be better because this happened to me. And, you know, you can, I think you can have, and, and while certain things, like, I'm not going to sit here and say like, bad things don't happen and you, you're not allowed you're, you're not allowed to feel bad about things that happen you are but if you constantly have this positive mindset of all right this this happened what can i learn from it how can i actually use it to my advantage um i think that, that and that's kind of a mindset that i have that i've really tried to cultivate recently is or not even recently like you know for a lot of my life is this you know okay this is, I, I can't control it that this happened, but my options are be mad about it, which doesn't really help me or anybody else, or look at it and say, Hey, what, what did I learn? How can I become better from this having happened? How can I, you know, not have this happen to me again because of what I know now. And, you know, it's just having that mindset of always taking it, taking a, a, uh, an obstacle and turning it into an opportunity. Yeah, I think that's such a powerful thing to look at. It reminds me, and it, the, the concept's still over my head, but um, the concept of being like anti-fragile, um, the seem to lead. Uh, if you have, if you really want to dig into some deep stuff, he's got some books that will. Those take a little while to get through. That's not a day. That's not a reading a day book. Mm-hmm. But that concept of you know take what happened to you, you know, everything you said about responding to it, but then utilize that to help make the system more robust and more anti-fragile because you learn from it. You can apply it to different things. You can continue to improve because of that, because it happened to you. Um, and that, that you can ultimately make it stronger because it did happen. And now you can be ready for it or some version or tangent of it in the future. And that's what ultimately makes the system more robust. All right. And it's all about, you know, the, the threat is not having an ego that's so big that you, you don't think you can learn from that, you know, that you can't be humbled by something and that you can't um, take, you know, this unfortunate event and turn it into something good because you're already the best or you already know everything or whatever, just all the other things we talked about, like just having, not having, letting this ego be your enemy of improvement. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, anything else to add before we kind of wrap up, we'll call this the part one because we'll have to definitely do one. one of these. Everyone go, go get it and read it. It'll take you one day. If you have a we'll, data. We'll link it up. Um, so if you're looking at this, uh, it'll be on our social media and whatnot. Uh, so if you're looking, also, if you're sorry, if you're looking for like smaller versions of this type of stuff, like he has the daily stoic um, it's, it's a book and it's a podcast and the podcast is, and you, there's a, there's an email. I'm on, I'm on his email list and he, you know, it's, he has it every day. It's the podcast. The podcast is like three or four minutes long. And he kind of gives one of these lessons, whether it be, 
on ego or about, you know, anti-fragility or whatever. Like he has these little four minute messages that he gives out. And like, it's, it's a good place to start with Ryan. Yeah. He's a good follow on Twitter too. It's a lot of quotes and different ideas, yeah. um, but he's a good follow. Um, I am just double checking, but if you go to clinicallypress.com backslash leadership resources, we've already got the book up there. Both ego is the enemy and obstacle is the way. And just for Rick, we also have extreme ownership on there. Thank um, you. Well, yeah. Well, I finally got my, well, I didn't get my copy back, but I got a copy back of that. So now I've got that back on my shelf which is good but there's also a lot of really good resources on there about some other really good leadership books that we think are really important so i'm um, going yeah. again that's clinicallypress.com backslash leadership resources it's got anti-fragile as well as another one by on the seem to live on that um but yeah yeah i've actually got i'm looking at my bookshelf now i've actually got two copies of extreme ownership up there right now because I have, uh, I, I bought it like way back, you know, when it came out in a first edition and I ended up giving that copy away and they never got it back. And I've since bought, I've probably purchased that book at least six or seven times for either for myself or for different people and bought it for myself, lent it to someone, never got it back. And was like, I'm not mad if I don't get it back. As long as you, you can, if it, if it improves your life, then I went on eBay and I bought myself a first edition. Um, so that one I have just kind of sitting there. If I ever meet Jocko, that's the one that he'll sign. And I have the I have the other one that's you know riddled with notes and highlighter and, and all that other stuff. But yeah, the first edition is like that's going to stay pristine for for Love when it. I finally get his autograph. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Well, this was good. Uh, if you guys had, if you're listening to this and you've got some Ryan Holiday favorites, uh, please send them out. Send them to us. Uh, we're curious about those too. Maybe we can have a conversation about them as well. Um, hope. You enjoyed this. If you like this format, also let us know. Um, there's plenty of other books. I mean, you, we extreme ownerships come out multiple times. That would be one fun one to talk about. Pull out some quotes from there. And dig back through my notes. But mm-hmm. it's been awesome. It's always good to catch up. Yeah, thanks for having me again, man. I appreciate it. And everybody else, we will talk to you guys later. <laughs>